I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. In both roles, I've found that I spend a lot of time thinking about and answering questions about cholesterol. For those unfamiliar, cholesterol is a waxy substance that's found in all living cells. It's required for life, but it can also be dangerous. According to the long-held cholesterol hypothesis, too much low-density lipoprotein, the so-called bad cholesterol, in the blood leads to its deposition in artery walls. The resulting plaque can block arteries and lead to heart attacks and stroke. This theory has been bolstered by decades of evidence ranging from epidemiological associations to genetic studies and interventional drug trials. There may be no better studied pathway in modern medicine. So here's the rub. At Keto, our mission is to enable the low-carbohydrate, high-fat, or so-called ketogenic diet. It's in our name. But people doing this diet have found that a modest number of them have a real and scary increase in blood cholesterol numbers. And this causes great distress, despite all of the many other benefits they are seeing. Emerging data show that low-carb, high-fat diets can lead to reduced weight, better control of blood sugar, insulin, triglycerides, and possibly blood pressure. But they may increase cholesterol in the bloodstream, which has been associated with an increased risk of heart attack. That doesn't necessarily mean low-carb, high-fat diets increase the risk of heart attack in everyone, or even in those with high cholesterol. So this raised some critical questions. Since most cardiologists agree that high cholesterol increases the risk of heart attack, does the high cholesterol one sees with a low-carb diet mean the same? Is there a way to figure it out? What's the quality of the evidence? What is the best way to make a decision when we don't have gold standard evidence? And so I was excited when I had the opportunity to sit down and interview Dr. Ron Krauss, a giant in the field of lipidology. Ron has tremendous experience and expertise in understanding the relationship between diet, nutrition, and risk of cardiovascular disease. Ron has thought about, studied, written about, and importantly, he's had a firsthand role in writing guidelines that shaped national nutrition policy specifically relating to cardiovascular risk. Ron knows as much as anyone about the relationship between low-carb diets and the effects on cholesterol. We sat down this past March in Ron's office at the Children's Hospital of Oakland Research Institute in Oakland, California, and we had a long and great conversation. A quick disclaimer, though Ron and I are both doctors, what we discussed should not be considered medical advice. I knew that Ron had made studying and treating cardiovascular disease his life's work. What surprised me, however, is how early in his life this mission began. Let me just tell you, my interest in cardiovascular disease began uh, at age six when I visited my father in the coronary care unit of the hospital in our area in Buffalo. Uh, he was in oxygen tent. This was in an era where coronary disease was taken as something where you got to stay in bed and be uh, treated uh, like you're about to die. And I was six years old. And uh, he, he recovered from that, ultimately did die of a heart attack later in life. And But as a child, I decided I got to do something about this. I, I was, I, I became totally committed to obliterating heart disease. I just felt that was something I had to do. I lived, I lived under the shadow of his heart disease for my entire adolescence. Uh, uh, I finally died after I uh, uh, went in, into training, but um, I was never sure when he was going to drop dead, and it was very difficult for me, for me. Um, and um, I wound up. Um, coming back to it through a parallel interest in nutrition. I became very interested in the effects of diet. I, that, that was acquired when I was in grade school and I took a class where the teacher was talking about diet. And I said, well, you know, diet and heart disease, that might be an interesting thing to pursue. Uh, and then in medical school, I came across at that time, a very uh, prominent series of articles in the New England Journal of Medicine from this group at NIH, Don Fredrickson, Levy, and Lees, where they published five papers where they laid out for the first time the gen a model for the genetic architecture 
of of cholesterol problems. And it, by that time, of course, I it was well aware cholesterol was involved with heart disease. What year was that? That was sixty um, seven, I think. And 66. you were a medical student. I was a medical student. Time. Yeah. And so, do, yeah. where were you a medical student? At Harvard. At Harvard. Uh, and uh, I was really impressed with those papers because it brought together everything I was interested in, and it introduced the concept of genetics. That this was really genetics. So at that time, in the early to mid nineteen sixties, what was known about what caused Cardiovascular, you know, coronary disease. Um, there was, uh, it was, it was heavily influenced by uh, uh, the the work of uh, Ansel Keys at all. The, the the concept really was that it was about cholesterol and cholesterol in the diet, cholesterol in the blood. In fact, um, when I much later became chair of the American Heart Association Nutrition Committee, one of the things I really had to uh, grapple with was uh, the media. I had a lot of media interest in every study that came out up until the present time on cholesterol right. and, and diet um, and, um, and struggled with this conflation of dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol that people right. just assumed that the cholesterol in your heart was coming from your diet. I said, well, you know, that may be true to some extent, but that's not really what this is about. It's about things that regulate blood cholesterol. So, um, so at that time, uh, getting back to your question, it was... The cholesterol story was out there, but not in any kind of a meaningful way. And that's really what happened, again, getting back to the series of articles, in my mind at least, was crystallizing uh, a much more integrated picture, incorporating uh, what we knew about lipoproteins in the blood, using the system that they developed on acarose gels, finding the different classes of particles, and that was known. But what they did was to attach a familial and essentially a genetic basis to each of these five types of hyperlipidemia. And that, of course, has been largely transcended, almost completely transcended by much more molecular-based uh, architecture of these different phenotypes. But at the time, it was a breakthrough. And, and it was, to me, just earth-shattering because, because each one of those had their own diet. So, so they were able to take the genetic model and say, well, if you've got type 1, you should limit fat, which is actually true. This is hyperchylomicronemia. Uh, if you have type 2, which is hy you know, hyper-LDLemia, you should limit saturated fat. That was that was also part of the um, Ansel Keys uh, message. It was saturated fat. Uh, that, that was already out there. Um, but the, it was specifically for this trait, and it wouldn't work for the other one. And I thought, well, this is really starting, nutrition, to, yeah. starting to get yeah. into the idea of the dissecting. This is in the, you know, in the 60s. And um, and at that point, I decided, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this, this is perfect because it's putting a molecular basis on something that connects diet and heart disease. And, um, and I started to become interested in lipoproteins as a result of learning from these, uh, these people at, uh, at NIH. Ron knew he wanted to study biology that was relevant to cardiovascular disease. And he also knew that he did not want to go fight in the Vietnam War. At that time, young physicians who wanted to avoid the draft could go work in labs at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. This group of young doctors was and is still known as Yellow Berets. He chose to work in the laboratory of the famous investigators Fredrickson, Levy, and Lees. The application process was extremely competitive, but Ron got a position. He went on to have a very successful time at the NIH, publishing many important and highly cited papers. But then Ron did something very unexpected and unusual. He decided he wanted to be a full-time doctor, and he decided he wanted to get off the academic treadmill. Well, you know, <laughs> this is the track. I'm not interested in that. Right. Uh, that that's not what I want. If, you know, if I want to be in science or in the lab, uh, is, is, this the, is this what you do when you're successful? I, I had really sort of a, a warped model of the trajectory. And then on top of that, I was witnessing a lot of academic position, even within the group in NIH, within the group itself, there was there were competition. And I just found the whole thing, the whole academic model, I was beginning to be very seriously upset with. In fact, this was long ago, and I haven't thought about this in a long time, but it was, it was a pretty big decision I made. I decided I didn't want to do that. And I got off the academic track. I decided I was going to go into practice because I loved the clinic. I love I love what I was doing in my little lipid clinic, and I decided I was going to be a practitioner. And I have 
done everything I could to maintain a clinical connection because for me it's absolutely essential, both in terms of my own satisfaction. I just had a clinic yesterday, and, I, and people that I feel I'm really, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but they're alive because of coming to see me. I mean that. I think that's probably true for some for some of these people, and that's very satisfying and uh, and very stimulating. And um, uh, I don't want to give it up, and because it gives me ideas for the lab. This is probably as good a time as any to bring everyone up to speed on cholesterol, lipoproteins, and particles. Cholesterol is, of course, well known to everyone, but what might not be well known is that this substance is found in all animal cells. It is absolutely necessary for the function of cell membranes among many other things. You'll also hear Ron talk about lipoproteins, which are assemblies of different proteins and lipids that are designed to shuttle fats, including cholesterol, all over the body. Historically, they have been classified by their density, their weight, which can be quantified by spinning them in a centrifuge. There, the denser particles sediment more quickly and therefore end up toward the bottom of the tube after the spin. As Ron described, there was this series of five seminal articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, published in 1967 by the investigators Fredrickson, Levy, and Lees. And these papers described the different types of lipoproteins and their relationship to the risk of developing blocked arteries, what we call coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis. This observation was first described by a little-known scientist Ron thinks should have won the Nobel Prize, John Goffman in the 1940s and 50s. Low-density lipoproteins are also known as LDL cholesterol, and they have been associated with risk of heart attack for decades. They're what are known commonly as bad cholesterol. Ron was the first person to further define that there were multiple subclasses of LDL defined by the predominant size of the particles. And in 1988, he published a tremendous paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, describing two different kinds of patterns that he termed pattern A and pattern B. Pattern A had large and fluffy particles, and pattern B was characterized by small and dense particles. And what Ron showed was that people with pattern B had a threefold greater risk of heart attack. This was astonishing. And I discovered that there was a, a fraction of LDL, which had SF0 through 7, which is small LDL particles, that was correlated inversely with HDL levels. I said, that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder what that means. So we decided to do a project, um, and I got some help with this from senior people, where we separated LDL in a density gradient to see if we could capture any heterogeneity and uh, that could identify perhaps what these small LDL particles look like. It could we separate them from the other forms of LDL, and sure enough, we got this banding pattern, which convinced me that LDL was not only heterogeneous, but consisted of multiple distinct subclasses that were really different. And um, that was really radical. This paper showing the uh, the separation that was I published in uh, 1982, uh, and that's when that's when that whole thing started. But it was it was very difficult. At this point, we have a very detailed picture of how Ron came to devote his professional life to understanding how lipids and lipoproteins impact the risk of heart disease. And while I think this history is important, I traveled to Oakland really to interview Ron to hear his opinion about how nutrition and heart disease are linked, and specifically, how things we eat can impact our risk of developing diseases like heart attack and stroke. I started out by asking Ron a little bit about the history of using nutrition as medicine. Were you back in, say, the 1970s, were you making recommendations to patients based on nutrition? Was there still the belief that if you ate foods that were high in dietary cholesterol and maybe saturated fat that you would have this? So, so, so I remember... Uh... Uh, growing up, um, I uh, acquired a taste for uh, bacon and eggs on, on almost a daily basis, um, uh, and without thinking about any health consequences. You know, I was young, and that's just what I like to eat. When I came to NIH, and I started learning more about nutrition, at least what was thought to be the case at that time, 
I abandoned egg yolks. I decided I was going to have any egg yolks. I said, yeah. that bad, that's bad for you. And I, I decided I wasn't going to have bacon anymore. So, um, so there was, uh, I think, uh, appreciation of, uh, you know, animal fat. I mean, that was dogma. I, I know because my dad, who was at NIH same time as you, ended up going on to do cardiology. And so when I was growing up as a kid in the 1970s, we had no fat anywhere to be found in them. We would have egg beaters. Yeah, right. Or, you know, and, too. Yeah. Yeah. and, you know, margarine and canola oil and everything. Now, of course, what my dad didn't understand that I think you and I both understand today is that nutrition is, is a zero-sum game. And so if you've reduced one macronutrient down you're gonna by definition you're gonna increase you're gonna increase the other one no, so i'm deeply immersed in that road right now but uh yeah that's absolutely right yeah. and and so were you making i mean were you almost prescribing nutrition as a you know to my in patients? That time? yeah uh sure yeah and could you sure. see impacts and changes on the cholesterol in their uh, on their cholesterol not much not much so um this is bringing you know this is like a, a psychotherapy i haven't thought about this in in a long time but because at the same time i had gotten an ro1 this this goes back to when i first started here in, in berkeley and i was seeing patients and i was doing some some work in the lab and, I, and we got a grant um to study dietary uh, effects actually um in a controlled setting here uh in the berkeley campus where they had a, a actually a metabolic unit we were able to get a half a dozen kids to live in house. So this is a metabolic ward. You put people right. in right. in the right. hotel or whatever it is, right. and we were studying the effects of changing dietary fat. We, that was actually a project. On I had cholesterol on lipoproteins. Right? What did you find? Uh, what we found is that they were all different. Okay, <laughs> we had six people, <laughs> yeah. and they all had different responses. Right, and I said, well, there is no such thing as normal. Okay, they're supposed to be healthy people, but some of them. Showed the increase, some of them didn't, some of them showed a change in one particle and not another's. And you know, end of six was hopelessly ridiculous yes. in, in retrospect to be able to get anything. We never got a paper out of it. Well, we got one paper, but it was, it was really not uh, at all a productive study. And the light went off in my head that we have to individualize. And that was sort of obviously resonated already with what the the Fredrickson Levy Lee's model had already started. And how does that work? So it, but, back at that point, how were you doing it? How were you? You were you were actually just doing trial and error. You, saying, you mean in, in practice? In, yeah, in individual people. Yeah. So I would come back from the lab. We were doing these analyses, yeah. and I tell my patients, "Listen, um, I'm not going to uh, criticize you if you're trying to follow a diet and your cholesterol is not going down. I'm going to believe you." And these are patients I knew pretty well, and I wasn't going to give them a hard time. I was going to say, well, listen, you are not responding as we would expect, but there's something metabolic or genetic going on here, and we're going to have to use medication. And um, in the end, the uh, net effect of the kind of dietary manipulations we were doing was very small on average anyway, but there were some people who responded well, and those that didn't, which is the majority who were at risk, I wound up putting on cholestyramine at that time. Uh, and ultimately then when statins came around. Well, that's statins. an important point because I think, you know, I came, so I started medical school in 1991. And at that time, statins were on the market. They've been on the market for a few years. And the way I see things that at that time, once statins were shown to be safe and efficacious and not just reducing cholesterol and all the other lipoproteins, but that they reduced the risk of having events like heart attacks. It feels like people just gave up on nutrition as a way to treat patients. Is that absolutely true? And um, because the, the dietary effects on the markers, lipoprotein markers at the time, which were not the kind of markers that we now know are more informative, right. the more detailed markers, were fairly mo modest at best. And compliance was an issue and patients didn't like the diet. And here the statins were able to achieve a 30% reduction in LDL and diet, maybe a 5%. And there were papers on this. Um, and so the inclination was clearly uh, to write a prescription uh, I'd rather than worry about diet. And cardiologists, with all due respect, didn't have a lot of training or interest in diet to begin with, right? So it was an obvious way out. And, uh, but so did you also give up on using nutrition? As oh, a no, tool? no, no, no. I always, uh, I always made, you know, because at the time, it was about that time, I think, now, maybe it was in the 90s that I got uh, invited to be in the American Heart Association Nutrition Committee. And, um, you know, I was sort of, an, I was, a, you know, sort of formally and officially an advocate for diet and lifestyle. I inherited these low-fat guidelines. Okay. That was the era of low-fat. The American Heart Association was as guilty as any other 
organization promoting diet, the recommendation to simply cut fat. A, a simple message to people. All fat doesn't, there low, was no... It was low fat. No, it didn't, they didn't make a distinction between unsaturated no, fat and saturated. No. It was just all fat. It was a low fat mm-hmm. diet, which because of the substitution issue was high carb. And that was really part of the recommendation, low fat, high carb. So two things happened simultaneously. One is I came on as chair of the nutrition committee and it was time to write the American Heart Association Dietary Guidelines. And that was my responsibility. And, and, we, and we, published, uh, we published this in 1996. And uh, I was really wet behind the ears in terms of understanding the basis for all this. I figured, well, people before me must know what they were talking about. And, uh, you know, we looked at the literature, but it was not really a critical look. And I just right. was willing to say, well, this is what all these people have been talking about. And there are senior people in the field. And there's a guy named Ed Bierman, who was Washington, who was actually trashing the the uh, the approach of dividing by phenotypes that Fredrickson, that we had developed at uh, NIH, because he said, well, everybody should be on the same diet. Uh, and it should be uh, uh, low in fat and high in carb. And it turned out later he was in in bed with the sugar people. It, it, it's amazing it, how that happens, isn't it's, it? It's, yeah. it's, it's just, yeah. it, I only learned about this recently through Stan Glantz. At this time, Ron was not just practicing medicine and doing great science, but he was also involved in policy. In the 1990s, he was invited to chair the Nutrition Committee of the American Heart Association. One of the projects was to go back to a feeding study and to hypothesize that people, by that time I had realized some people have more of the large LDL, some people have more small LDL. Well, how does that affect the response to diet? And so I thought, well, low-fat, high-carb diet would, must be good, and so it must benefit people who have the smaller LDL, which we had been uh, supposing was related to higher heart disease risk, which right. it turns out later it was shown to be. And the hypothesis was that there might be a differential effect uh, where the low-fat diet improves these particles. So we were doing studies where we were, now we're at, we had not six people, but a hundred people. I mean, we were able to do these very large intervention studies and uh, starting to analyze the data around the time my first guidelines came out from AHA, and I discovered, wait a minute, this low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet is really screwing things up for a large number of the people who are studying these healthy individuals are actually not generating less of this material. They're generating more of it. And then when did it get start to be called Pattern A and Pattern B? 1987. We published a paper in Lancet, um, in which we just... Uh, so, because that's where my clinical uh, interface really helped, because I was... Doing this in the work in the lab, we developed the gradient shell procedure, which allowed us to analyze particles on a much larger scale than the old ultracentrifuge days. And so I brought the gradient shell into my clinic. So I was studying everybody that I was treating clinically under a protocol. I'd have them sign a consent form saying, well, we're going to look at your changes in response to diet, and you're going to agree to do this, and we're not going to charge you. We're going to do it as part of my investigating. this." So that that's when I discovered there were these patterns. I mean, I'm sort of a right. pattern guy. And I said, right. well, well, there are just these different patterns, and they're pretty obvious. And one of the graduate students at the time, Melissa Austin, and I wrote a paper for Lancet, which was supposed to be a hypothesis paper, but it got screwed up and it got published as an actual research report because it was very preliminary. But it turned out to be true. I mean, we said pattern B was worse than pattern A, and you saw these different peaks. That was, uh, that was that first observation. So I had that observation that was part of this grant, and it turned out that the pattern A people were turned into pattern B when they went on this healthy diet, which was not good. So I was learning all this as I was still chair of the Nutrition Committee for the Heart Association, and I said, wait a minute, these guidelines have to be changed. You <laughs> said one, that. The, the ones that I actually wrote. Yeah. So I stayed on an extra term. So I decided I was not going to give up because usually it's a one term for three right. years or two years or whatever. And I decided, you know, I didn't see anybody else that I wanted to turn this over to. So I decided to stay on so let's just, term. I just want to make sure that we hit this because this I, is I really important. A, I, wrote a, I wrote a second set. I want to get to the second guidelines because that's important. <laughs> but at that time, you were writing guidelines based on all of these opinions and based on some observational data that had been suggested that if you ate a low fat high carb diet that it would be might be protective but no data even existed on surrogates there wasn't even so much as to say well yeah it's going to change your cholesterol in this direction well low saturated fat with lower cholesterol no 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 uh, so, so i want to give credit to the yeah. following and that is that uh the, the rationale was you want a lower saturated fat which does lower ldl cholesterol that's a whole separate topic right whether there's even a rationale for that but if you lower total fat, 
the saturated fat will come along with it and it's easy and it's easier for people to sort of register that and carbs you know grains are good for you so that's all very ron later went back to link his old work on ldl particles with nutrition with a study that aimed to determine how changes in nutrition might impact ldl particles he set out to determine whether there were differences in the patterns of ldl that might be due to the amount of fat or carbohydrate that people ate And the results, as he described, flipped everything he thought he knew about nutrition on its head. And the experiment you did with the 100 people in the metabolic ward was to give them this low-fat, high-carb diet. And what you saw was a shift from pattern A to pattern B. Well, we're able to to subdivide the population. So it was stratified. It was done in in a prospective way to say we're going to look at pattern A and pattern B separately. So so the pattern B people... you know, did okay, uh, you know, not brilliantly on that diet, but the pattern A people who were the majority, right. um, I think 40% of them uh, converted to pattern B I got it. in okay, six so, weeks. So now tell me about the second guy. So you so, said so, this so is... Here yeah, I was, yeah, right, yeah. thinking, my, my God, I, I can't advocate this diet right. knowing what I know from my own work, right? right? And so um, uh, we wrote a second set of guidelines in 2000, and that was a, a, a struggle. And I had people whose names I will not divulge okay, in public. I'll tell yeah. you. I'll tell you okay. offline if you're interested. That were part of the establishment that came along with, from the old era, you know, where the biblical uh, ma- mandates uh, said you got to have less than thirty percent fat and less, and less than three hundred. And I said, well, "Where's the data for this?" Can I pause you for a second? Yeah. I want to ask you a quick question because yeah. this is so important. But do you think, if you had to guess, do you think that those people were were so opposed to what you were saying because of just religion, of dogma, of just this is what was ingrained in their heads, or did they have another reason that they actually really believed this scientifically? It's interesting. Um, they felt it was science-based. They operated on a paradigm which exists today still in the guidelines world, and that is if a diet um, lowers LDL cholesterol, it's going to reduce the risk of heart disease. And and that relationship between diet and LDL and the effect of diet and LDL clearly was established for saturated fat. There was no question about that. But what people also believed was that there was evidence that this affected outcomes. And there was no evidence for that. We're going to come back to that, too. Right. Um, so what did the second set of guidelines say? <laughs> uh, so I fought okay. very hard to break out of the 30% fat mantra. That, that was where, you know, the Bible had taught us to stop. And um, I said, we got we to liberalize this. Uh, and there are people out there in the world, like Walt Will and others, who are sort of in the Mediterranean diet world, who were not, you know, somewhat on board with this. But within the Heart Association, that was still not accepted at all. And I couldn't get, because it had to be a committee. So the authors, I mean, I was the first author, but there were 15 authors, and, and there were people that just said, you, you, what's the evidence that that's okay? Right, there because, you go. Yeah. Because you didn't Super have evidence e- yeah. either way, right? And I said, well, so finally what we got established, uh, and this was, an era which I don't want to ever go back to in my life where I had to be a, a, an autocratic politician. That I, I had to force in a leadership role changes that there was great resistance for and succeeded to a moderate extent. That is for subsets of people who may have um, what we're calling atherogenic, ultimately called atherogenic dyslipidemia, I forgot what we called it at the time, there could be a benefit uh, to, it could be allowed to take more unsaturated fat um, and, and so that the total amount of fat could be higher. And as long as it wasn't more saturated fat. So I got the total fat guidelines for selective application. I forgot exactly how we pulled this off up to 35%. That was 35. That was, that was a breakthrough. That was the first time the American Heart Association was able to do that. And, and there were people in the low carb community at that time who were sort of some of the same people who are in it now, but some of the early uh, zealots for, for low carb saw me as sort of breaking the mold. Even going uh, from 30 to 35, right, you were seen that, as a savior. That, 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 was, that, that, wow. was a, that was a big wow. step for the American Heart Association to do that. And, and, and then I started a council on, on nutrition and, uh, and metabolism and physical activity, which was the first of its type in the AHA. I, I fought to do that because I felt there had to be. And that's where we started to talk about um, uh, joining forces with the diabetes world and the obesity world. And so I set up a council, I set up a sub, uh, a, we used to have a committee on nutrition with the new council. We had a committee on diabetes and a committee on physical activity. We still, and that still exists. Uh, so that was uh, the last thing I did as a formal member of the Heart 
Association uh, establishment. No, I, I became I became a director of AHA, but um, I sort of stepped out of the science mold and turned over the nutrition process to my uh, successors, and the thing just fell right back. It's um, amazing. It, it did not survive. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So if you look at it, so so if you look at uh, cita- I look at this occasionally the citations for the two thousand dietary guidelines, which which were the ones that I was reasonably happy with, are still being people are still citing those guidelines even though they're two cycles old by now. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask Ron was about the concept of evidence based medicine as it relates to nutrition. Evidence based medicine is the term that became popular fifteen or so years ago. And what it means is that doctors make treatment recommendations or write prescriptions based on the results of rigorous clinical studies, usually randomized clinical trials, or what we call RCTs. Cardiologists led this movement mainly because they were doing the first big trials. But one of the principles key to the concepts of best-known method is how do we operate when there are no gold standard level trials? You said something a few minutes ago about outcomes, and I think that we we have to address this point because it's it's critical. So, in cardiology, we're wed to these you know this evidence based RCT gold standard tier one level evidence, and if it doesn't exist, the the feeling among my colleagues, some of my colleagues, is the absence of evidence is strong evidence. So, in our world, when it comes to lipids, we've now demonstrated with multiple classes of medications that if you take a medicine that happens to lower let's say ldl cholesterol apob part containing particles well this may not be the same for mm-hmm. me well uh, there's an overlap between right. those two measurements right so but it's those drugs whether it's entirely due to their effects on lipoproteins or lipids but those drugs tend to have significant effects in reducing the risk of of cardiovascular disease especially in people who have existing disease but but i think we'd agree even in people without disease there's a there's an effect and that's high level evidence but in nutrition save one or two examples there hasn't been such a study has there that shows if you put somebody on say call it nutrition program a versus nutrition program b that there's a difference in risk of developing cardiovascular disease i discovered that some of my colleagues who were most uh, resistant to the notion that maybe saturated fat is not the killer maybe it's carbohydrate um when asked to support that opinion from the data would say, well, the epidemiology has shown it and the clinical trials have shown it. Uh, And there is four classical clinical trials and a couple of others that are more controversial that did show a benefit of a diet in which there was an enormous amount of polyunsaturated fat being consumed. Saturated fat intake was not really so much reduced to as the polys were increased. So it was not really a study of saturated fat per se. And the epidemiology, I was beginning to look at myself and I, I, I couldn't find the evidence for it. I couldn't find the evidence uh, that saturated fat itself was a culprit as opposed to the substitution of unsaturated fat. So I took it upon myself uh, to write a, rev- a review, uh, which we tried to do a systematic review of the field. This was much more recently. This was in the 2000s. I forgot when exactly. 2010. So this is long after uh, some of these issues came up initially, but it took me a while to decide to do something that was epidemiologic because I was quite critical, frankly, of all the epidemiologic data, and I didn't want to necessarily be part of that. But um, in writing the systematic review where I was pointing out that carbohydrates have these adverse effects, but by that time we had shown it's the carbohydrates in the low-fat diets that really were the ones that kicked people into the small LDL profile. So we were able to do a study where we kept the fats constant and just changed the carbs and protein. It was the carbs, the high carbs that were bad. So I became a low-carb advocate because of that. And we published another paper showing that low-carb could benefit these uh, individuals with this phenotype. And so I became embraced by the low-carb community big time. And to this day, I'm still building off that relationship. I also wanted to ask Ron about nutritional epidemiology. Since it's difficult or impossible to do RCTs for nutrition, many of the conclusions used to base nutrition guidelines, or those perceived by the public to be quote-unquote healthy, are derived from observational studies. This is epidemiology, and epidemiology tries to use statistics to look for connections between what people do, in this case eat, and what happens to them, in this case risk of disease. 
These studies form the basis of almost everything we know, or maybe everything we think we know about modern nutrition. But as you will hear, they are horribly flawed. In nutrition, we're stuck. It seemed unrealistic uh, in the end to say that we're going to have outcome studies for every aspect of nutritional manipulation that we'd be concerned about. It just isn't going to happen. And so nutritional epidemiology, with all of its concerns, represents the key element of our ability to make inferences about causality, even though we can't prove causality. So, yeah, I mean, this has come up a lot recently, and I think, you know, it's a philosophical question as much as anything else, right? Do you use these inherently terribly flawed data to make recommendations, or is there something else, or should we be making recommendations at all? From my philosophy, sorry, from my point of view, the flaws in nutritional epidemiology are twofold. One is the inputs are bad, right? So we're terrible at recalling what we ate. So whatever you're inputting into the model is incredibly flawed. But even if you just assume that the input was perfect, that we all had 100% recall of everything we ate over the past week, and we could, like a computer, feed it into a model, even then, we're still stuck with the confounding problem. And it came up, you know, last week with or two weeks ago with this egg story. And, you know, everybody's freaking out about eggs again. And that, that story's gone full circle. I don't know how many different times. You've probably seen it go full, go full circle 20 times. I can, I can tell you about that. Just yeah. br- briefly, is I, I, was, I served on a panel for the um, Institute of Medicine at the time um, and the uh, Food and Nutrition Board uh, to write um, uh, recommended dietary intakes for macronutrients, which was the first time that was done. And I had people like Scott Grundy and uh, others that were on that panel. And we spent a year and a half putting, uh, in fact, I have the report here somewhere, providing evidence base for the U.S. dietary guidance, which they didn't have. Uh, and we were assigned topics uh, to write chapters on in this book, which is really pretty good companion at the time, you know, fat, different fats and carbohydrates and protein. And my assignment was to write the cholesterol chapter, the dietary cholesterol chapter. So I wrote this chapter and I had to look at all the data at the time. Uh, and there was no question that there was a quantitative effect of dietary cholesterol, blood cholesterol, maybe, maybe not quite linear, but it was, it was modest. And what I concluded, which is still true, I think, even with the recent data, is that that effect in order to have an impact on heart disease risk, you'd have to study the, the population of the known world right, to be able to show that that's going to impact heart disease well, risk. Well, even the, the effect the, size the, of that the, study that was tiny. The effect is so yeah. small. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so I wrote, so I wrote this yeah. chapter, and I think it's still true, actually. And all of a sudden now, um, there's this relationship which may be a little steeper than what we thought at the time. And I've become a little more careful about the egg yolk question. But it's a good case study of the kinds of issues that we're dealing with. So here's the thing. And I think I told you that we've been talking about this concept of best known of best known method. We call it BKM. And and I guess, you know, this comes down to the fact that when it comes to nutrition, we all have to eat. And so I have children and I have patients and you have children and you have patients and you have other people in your life who are going to ask you, Dr. Krause, what should I eat? And we have to figure out a way to be able to communicate to them. And I guess w- what we're left with is in my head a series of bad options. But I want to talk about so we've talked about nutritional epi, which I think is flawed. Let's not I guess we could agree that we won't we won't dismiss it outright, but it, it, you can't. Right, you can't, uh, and particularly if it uh, converges with with experimental data on, right. on, on either outcomes or biomarkers. Uh, I think we have to use very careful language to say that uh, I forgot exactly how we described this, but that the weight. I think it was the weight of the evidence supports. That's what we said. The weight of the evidence does support a relationship, and that includes the epi. So epi doesn't stand on its own, right? Ever, right? Shouldn't. Uh, I've written this uh, in another review I was involved with. Uh, uh, one of the conclusions, trying to review all the lines of evidence supporting dietary recommendations, was we need better biomarkers of outcomes because we're never, as we said earlier, going to get the clinical trials of outcomes of specific nutrients. In fact, it's inherently impossible, even if one were to have a trial to look at outcomes of, let's say, more polyunsaturated fat, you have to change something else. We right. talked about this earlier. So, so to be able to pinpoint the effect of a given nutrient with an outcome trial is going to be uh, fraught with hazards. And for clinical outcomes of cardiovascular disease or other chronic diseases, I think it's 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 out of reach. So the alternative is to be able to have tools that are both predictive of response in terms of health outcomes, as well as markers that may change as a result of the intervention that are predictive of outcomes. Those are 
sorely needed and it's doable and it's science that you can do. So where, where are we? Are we there yet? Now? No, we're no. nowhere near there. there. We're so, nowhere near there. Are there, a, uh, coming back to this best known method thing, this idea, you know, let's say I come to you as a patient and I say, I'm, I want to try this low carb thing. And what, what should I pay attention to? Give me five things I should pay attention to in, in terms of markers. Okay. Well, it kind of starts and maybe even ends with LDL particles okay. to me okay. um, because um, they're coming to see me uh, from a sort of cardiovascular angle, yep. right? Uh, and maybe a diabetes angle. And um, I'd look at the hemoglobin A1C and I'd look at, um, you know, glycemic control and I would look at the LDL particle profile. Okay. And just so we're clear, that is the relative proportion of small particles to total or? No, that's the amount. It's total so, so, it's, so the other debate that I've had to work through is what, what's sometimes described as size versus number. And those are not so different because what I'm concerned about is the number of particles of a certain size. Okay. And, and this is small LDL in particular because I feel the evidence strongly supports causality. In terms of cardiovascular outcomes, and therefore the dietary effects on that marker, I'm somewhat inclined to believe, even though when asked, do we have definitive proof from any outcome trials that changing those particles changes outcome? Per se, you rely on statistics, and there are some studies which suggest there's an independent relationship, but causality is almost impossible to establish. Okay, I want to make sure that we're clear on this because it can be confusing. So there's a, there are three markers that I'm told are relatively similar in most people. And there may not, may not be hundred percent concordance, but, but one is just non-HDL cholesterol as a, you know, total cholesterol minus your HDL. Two is APOB, your total level of APOB. And three is the total number of particles. LDL, you, of LDL, of LDL particles. particles right. yeah. uh, and so do you generally agree that mostly for the vast majority of people, if there's concordance, that those are all relatively equi equivalent risk markers? Or do you think there's something better about getting the more refined? Um, they're highly correlated with each yeah. other. Okay. They're highly correlated. And um, in terms of causality, it becomes somewhat of a belief, uh, very difficult to prove, that measuring the particles is getting closer to causality. Let me just advertise the following. Okay. That is, uh, I've been part of an uh, international consensus panel organized by the European Atherosclerosis Society that has been charged with uh, writing two papers uh, to establish the causality of LDL for heart disease risk, okay. which turns out to uh, to me to be uh, a somewhat surprising exercise because I thought it was so obvious that we didn't have to write a paper about it. But there's so much now pushback by yes. certain elements in the field you and I yes. know uh, that that paper was deemed necessary. And it was driven by the Europeans, interestingly. We wrote the first of, of those two papers, which was published last year. The second paper is a mechanistic paper, um, okay. which is in the works. Okay, It's going to come out. And, and my role in that paper was to talk about the particles, sign okay. their subclasses. And um, I think it, it's going to come out with a fairly reasonably case that um, the number of small particles is a marker for a disease risk state that they are part of the cause. Okay. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but, <laughs> and I think you and I have talked about this before, but, but is there some thought that the larger particles may be beneficial, not just not harmful? Some people have surmised that I am not one of them. Okay. So for you, if, if you, if you're gun to your head, you're measuring one of these three markers. If you want to get a little more refined, you, you want to know the number of small LDL particles. That's right. I start, okay. So I see patients, so I saw right. patients yesterday right. and, and I tell them and it first look at the total number of particles, LDLP. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Pretty useful. Then look at the, sm the small and the medium, actually, because the small and medium are the two categories in this test that uh, come out risk. And the small and mediums um, do not always apply with a total because the total sometimes they reflect larger particles. So I, I look at all three of those and that's not too much information for most patients. Okay. They can deal with that. As we finished our interview, I decided to ask Ron specific questions about how he uses his own best known method in his life. I think you'll all find his answers very interesting. Okay. So let's get down to brass tacks a little bit. Let's just kind of get to the, the meat of this, which is, I'm going to ask you two questions. One is, and we can use me as the example patient. So let's say I come to your office and I say, I'm considering going on this low carb diet. You've told me I should pay attention to my particles. So I do that. I, I measure my LDL particles number at day one and it's 
let's just say a thousand. And I come back after being on this diet for six months and my particle, my LDL particle numbers, 2000. I don't even let's say 3000, yeah, 3000. Okay. okay. So let's just say that. So then as a patient, what do you tell me about that in terms of two things? One is how risky is that? Or again, best known idea, like how can we best give you the information about risk? And then what do you do about it? So you would like me to do a consultation yeah. on your podcast? Yeah. I want you to consult on me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the simple answer is we have no idea. Okay. But what do I do? Yeah. I still have to do something, right? Yeah, you have, have to, to do say something. And I have to say something. So I look at context. I look at the usual suspects when it comes to cardiovascular risk. Is there a family history of cardiovascular disease suggesting an underlying genetic uh, predisposition uh, that might be of concern here? What's happening to other markers? And admittedly, HDL cholesterol has uh, is flawed, but is HDL cholesterol um, going up as the it sometimes does? Yeah. And what's happening to triglycerides? And then what's happening to the types of particles? And um, if, and I just saw a patient like this Yesterday, literally. Okay. literally. Uh, if there's no family history, uh, if the particles are all large, uh, if the HDL has gone up and the triglyceride has stayed down and glucose has remained normal, and let me add one other thing in the equation. Let's just say that you have done something which I would recommend to some of these people as a, an adjunct to this evaluation. Let's say you've had a coronary artery calcium yeah. score done and your coronary artery calcium was zero. What would I say? I would say that perhaps this is not an atherogenic change, okay. despite the magnitude of the LDL. Having said that, I'm very uncomfortable okay. with that magnitude of increase because um, we don't know the cause. If the cause were something affecting LDL clearance, which is the case for uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, where you do get exactly the same right. phenotype with very large particles, the HDL doesn't necessarily go up, but you get this selective increase, major increase in larger LDL due to defective clearance, those particles are atherogenic. Okay. Not because they're large, but because they're circulating forever. Right. And they uh, wind up in the arteries and, and do all the bad things that LDL can do, not because of their properties as particles, but as a function of their metabolic behavior and their uh, and their resonance time in plasma. So I don't know whether you're in that and there's situation. No way to know. Not, not yet. Okay. That's where we want to get okay. better markers. That's 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 a research direction that um, if anybody is going to listen to your podcast and this is part of it that is wants to put a couple of hundred thousand dollars into a clinical trial or more, that's what uh, I think we need to do is kinetic studies. We're starting to explore that actually already because I don't see any way around uh, answering that question. We're not going to have outcome studies. So for you, I would tell you the following, yeah. that as some of our own studies have shown that some people are hyper responders right. to saturated fat. Having said what we said. And you think it's saturated fat? No, I haven't finished. Oh. Um, that saturated fat could be uh, having an amplified effect. Maybe if there is something wrong with your clearance, maybe maybe saturated fat is suppressing things further and it's causing this thing to skyrocket. So I've taken yeah. patients. I will take you and yeah. I will say, let's do an experiment with you. Okay. Let's cut down the saturated fat Good. from all sources and let's put you on fish and non-meat sources yep. for six weeks yep. and let's see what happens. Yes. And I've had a, f a couple of patients in whom the LDL has plummeted. Okay. Um, by just making those dietary recommendations. So that's what I would do for you. Okay. And if that didn't happen, given what we know, even if you had none of the other risk factors we discussed, family history, et cetera, and if even if your coronary calcium was uh, zero, if you didn't respond to diet, I would advocate using a small dose of statin, which can often be effective. Right. It's a way of hedging your bets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so the first step is try and change the qualitative basis of the fat that you put into your body and maybe protein as well. But basically what that means is reducing the amount of fat you get from meat, increasing your fish and nut consumption, olive oil, avocado, stuff like that. See if it changes. If it changes, if it comes back down, that high LDL particle number comes back down, you feel comfortable. Okay. And then if not, your choice is potentially try and take a load of statin or I guess in theory to change diets or ignore it. Right. I mean, those are the, yeah. And I had people you know, that, uh, you know, this gets into the into our other world yeah. of ketogenic diet, which I've been learning about as a result of being thrust into this yeah. arena by my own studies, uh, yeah. not on ketogenic diet, but just low carb being 
on the path to right. no carb, to very little carb. Um, and people feel well. They have a lot of, uh, right. uh, somebody came in, in fact, one of the people I saw yesterday, say this anonymously, um, was uh, somebody that lost, you know, 35 pounds, uh, felt great and sharp mentally. He, he was totally wedded to the idea of mm -hmm. staying on a ketogenic right. diet. And so I actually gave him uh, two options. I said, if you want to lower your LDL particle count, you have actually three options. Mm -hmm. The first one uh, is to abandon the ketogenic diet because we know when you were on the previous diet, it wasn't yeah. so bad. The second to is to go on a, a statin. Yeah. And the third is uh, if you have a negative calcium score, we just sort of observe you for a while right. and see what if the calcium score does and hopefully nothing will happen in between that. All right. I want to flip the question around a little bit and say, let's say I come to you now and I'm eating a carnivore diet. I'm eating nothing but meat all day long. And I'm not, by the way, but just pretend I was. And and my particle count looks beautiful. Is there a reason that you would say to me, you're crazy and this is stupid right. and don't do that? You know, I had to review all this. And as much as I uh, am neither an epidemiologist nor uh, nor do I want to really be one, I, I have been thrust into this world. right? right. And um, I am how should I say, reasonably concerned. I'm, I'm concerned about the data linking red meat intake, up, intake to process red meat, which is even easier to pinpoint, to uh, mortality, cardiovascular disease, and, uh, and even diabetes. We don't know the cause of that. I think this would be something that would merit further study. Is it the type of beef? Is it grass-fed versus corn-fed? Um, does it, is it all due to processing? Uh, are there other factors? I don't know. I err on the side of caution and saying that it should be limited. And if people are wedded to having some, I'd say, as we did in the old days, you know, one or two portions a week is okay. probably not going to kill you. Okay. All right. So, all right, now I get to ask you the really hard question. What, what do you eat? Well, I try to adhere as much as possible to what some people would call Mediterranean dietary pattern. Um, and that's because over the years, I've accumulated data of my own as well as integrating others to suggest that um, the kinds of foods that are part of that diet are helpful foods. And the things I've written that have been reviews or, or advisory type of papers have really lined up with a trend finally uh, that the guidelines are also following to get away from nutrient composition to, to foods because, uh, again, we, the data isn't necessarily any better. It's still epidemiological data for the most part, but it's more integrative because okay. you're talking about the whole food. So what I eat, I have a lot of salmon. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I have it every morning, yeah. plus once a week for dinner, plus another portion of fish. So I'm big on fish, and I... I was a late adopter of fish. I never used to like fish uh, when I was growing up. Um, and I finally became a fish lover because I realized that this was a good source of protein and looked pretty healthy. And the fatty fish story looked pretty real to me. But you're time. not a subscriber to the Omega-3 thing. Not as I oh, Well, as a matter of fact, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Because there is some recent data from... Uh, an omega three product that sure. looks like yeah, yeah. official, but, but I, in fact, I was involved with writing reports for the AHA when I was chair of the nutrition committee that um, evaluated the data for fish and recommended two portions of fish a week, and that ultimately got into the U.S. dietary guidelines. And I still advocate that, and, and that's you, what I, and, and that's what I do. And you try to avoid plus, plus five times, plus seven times every morning. But you try to avoid <laughs> fish that may be higher in mercury content. I stay away from uh, yeah. the the high the yeah. high mercury content yeah. fish, you know, the swordfish, the mackerel. I try, you know, although we don't always do this. I mean, we're not like absolutely rigorous in every way, but we try to use brown rice rather than white rice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I stay away from other forms of carb, except on special occasions, except for chocolate stuff, yeah. which is my downfall. Yeah. And, and orange juice. So, so the two things orange that Orange juice. Yes. The two really? things, yeah. The two things that I consume that I would uh, like to uh, not suggest as a dietary recommendation for my patients right. or anyone else is I have a, a, a bit of orange juice every morning, a half a bagel, and, um, and I have some 
chocolate for dessert when dark chocolate or it's milk just, chocolate? No, it's just regular milk chocolate. Right, well, That's interesting. A, a, little, a little piece of brownie. I, I'm, I'm somewhat. I mean, this is my admission, um, and um, it's not what I would recommend. And I would recommend to my patients. But there's a quality of life issue that I do try to deal with with my patients. So if I were my own patient mm -hmm. and I said, you know, here you're of a certain age, your health is such and such, your diet's good, you're taking certain medications, etc. Um, um, even though my family history is a little flawed on one side, the other side has lived to 90. So I think I've gotten those mitochondria. Right. And um, would your quality of life suffer if I told you you couldn't have any chocolate? Yeah. And my answer would be yes. Yeah. To me. What's interesting is, I, and this is, this is to me, I mean, I love thinking about this stuff. I love thinking about it for my own personal reasons, my family, but for my patients too, because I, I was always fond of asking people, well, if you, you know, if I told you that if you ate nothing but tree bark for the rest of your life, that you'd live an extra seven years, you know, at least the way I think about it today, I would choose not to do that. I'll, I'll get rid of the seven years. As a final question, I decided to ask Ron Krauss, a physician scientist who'd spent decades studying the links between cholesterol and heart disease and nutrition and heart disease, I decided to ask Ron what he might do if he was given an unlimited sum of money to ask one more question. That is, what's the killer experiment? Uh, we've talked about your amazing career in research and it's still going on. If, if I could flip a switch and somebody dropped... Well, I don't know, let's say $10 million for a research project on this desk. What's the one sort of big question that you think is still left unanswered that you'd like to try and tackle in your you know, remaining years as a scientist? Honestly, the big question is something we haven't talked about, which I'm just starting to play with, and that is the effect of diet and metabolic factors on uh, risk for Alzheimer's disease. Huh. The more focused question mm -hmm. is the one that you touched on, and that is, What's going on with people that go on a ketogenic diet and have a sky high LDL yeah. particle number? That's the one. The Alzheimer's is sky, is you know, blue sky stuff. This is doable. And uh, I think it's extremely interesting. It has relevance to clinical practice as more people are adopting these low carb diets. What do we do? About and is that getting at the mechanism yes. of what's driving it? And what, so, what, what, what is going on? Because it's a phenotype yeah. that is absolutely striking. I mean, one of the one of the things that is known is that uh, ketones can drive cholesterol synthesis if they go into the acetoacetate pathway. There's a way to get yeah, out of it. Sure. So, um, so one of the possibilities is that there is uh, an overproduction abnormality uh, that is driven by ketones themselves. So these are all and answerable questions. All of these are absolutely. answerable. Yeah. yeah. It's just that yeah. there's no grant that I know of yeah. yet uh, from an you know, right. major source, you know, NIH, et cetera, uh, that is addressing this because the phenomenon itself is still pretty much in a segment of the world that has not been exposed, uh, you know, in the academic. But maybe, you know, so it seems like the movement in the past couple of years is that there seems to be general consensus that there is this group of what people are calling hyper responders. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it has... Uh, to me, if you know, if I were the funder, um, I'd say, well, the data you have are sufficiently uh, impressive, even though you haven't done any formal studies yet, uh, to say that this is of, of relevance both scientifically mm -hmm. and uh, and clinically, and and even perhaps on a public health basis, yeah. because of the trend and the benefits that are piling up for limiting carbohydrate intake, whether it's ketogenic or not, just this whole notion that there's going to be an increasing number of people uh, facing this issue. So for clinical practice as well as public health, it's impactful. And scientifically, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. As somebody who's been yeah. in the field, I don't really have enough evidence to say what the mechanism is to be discussed. Yeah. Uh, and that's crazy. What, uh, we should be able to, we should we be able should. to figure that out. And, yeah. and we should be able to make Personalized nutrition recommendations for people. Absolutely, right? we should. absolutely. Okay. Uh, so that's that. That that would be that's that's the million dollar. Well, project. that's amazing. That's the other great. one is a hundred million dollars. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any of it, so otherwise we would do it. All right. Well, this has been great, Ron. I really yeah. want to thank you for sitting down with me and uh, doing it. And well, I, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Ethan. You uh, opened up areas that some of which I haven't thought about for many years, uh, and it's been fun thinking back as well as forward with you. Awesome. Thank you. As Ron said, cholesterol levels can rise for people on a low-carb, high-fat diet, and we don't exactly know why. 
Everyone's body is genetically predisposed to process food differently. Ron's take mirrors and proudly shapes mine, which is that it's important to track what happens to some of these cholesterol markers when making any nutrition change and keep in communication with our doctors and health professionals. As of today, if you are one of the lucky 70 to 80% who does not have this increase in cholesterol after going on a low-carb diet, you can probably rest easy. For the 20 to 30% who do see this increase, there are lots of choices. And importantly, if you like the diet and you like the rest of the benefits, you don't have to stop. One might start by altering the composition of fats that one eats. Say, replacing saturated fat from meat, largely with unsaturated fats found in olive oil, avocados, nuts, or even salmon. One could also experiment with reducing the amount of red meat. There might also be an option to keep an eye on things with other tests, or in some cases, one could consider starting a medication. And yes, some people might choose to stop eating a ketogenic diet altogether. Again, this is really a hedge. We have to make a decision today that may or may not impact us at all. And if it does, it might do so decades from now. So my advice is simple. Talk to and listen to experts. It is certainly possible that current dogma on cholesterol could be wrong. But it's also true that it's not necessary to put all of your money on one number on the roulette wheel. In fact, there are lots of options, as we discussed earlier. But my advice is to make a decision that works best for you and do so while weighing the evidence that we have today. This is the best-known method.